Welcome to The Conversation at Airsafe.com with your host, Dr. Todd Curtis. This is show number 64, Crash of Spanair MD-82, comments from Captain Patrick Smith. Two days after the crash of a Spanair MD-82 on 20 August 2008, I interviewed Patrick Smith, an airline captain with a major U.S. carrier and the author of the book, Ask the Pilot. We discussed several issues, including the quality of media coverage of the event and provided some insights into what areas may be important in the ongoing investigation. So let me just, uh, you know, start out in general just talking about the Spanner event. You know, I woke up 7 o'clock here in the West Coast, and the first thing that came through my mind, this is based on what I saw with the Qantas event a couple, uh, actually back, I think it's uh, July 25th. When I first heard about that, it was maybe three or four hours after the plane had landed in Manila. And I went to YouTube, seeing if the uh, Manila news stations had some footage of the event. And what surprised me, was that there were like three or four passenger-generated video already on YouTube. And I thought, whoa, this is something I'm going to have to do in the future. I'll look to see what video is up there. I did the same thing for this event a couple hours after I woke up, and there was nothing. Nothing from the passengers, nothing from the ground. uh, And I thought, maybe this is more serious than I thought. Maybe the passengers didn't have a chance to do cell phone video. What was equally surprising was that there was nothing else going on. No close-up news media footage. No footage snuck out by the rescue crews, nothing. It's almost as though the Spaniards had uh, put a total lockdown on this. Well, your initial point about turning reflexively to YouTube is definitely a symptom of our age. But getting back to your comparison between the Qantas uh, emergency landing after the decompression and the Spanair crash, I mean, it's obvious that you're comparing two very different types of accident. The first uh, was more of an incident, um, an emergency landing versus an all-out crash that killed pretty much everybody on the airplane. Um, As you said, there really isn't time to to break out the cell phone or, or the camera and start snapping pictures. Inside the plane, it may not be possible at all, and certainly it looks like that was the case with Spanair. But outside the plane, I took it as a a belief without really questioning it that that you'd have all sorts of outsiders shooting stuff out there almost immediately. I think that depends where the accident occurs exactly, who has access to the site, and with the with the Spanair incident, I don't really know the layout of the airport to understand exactly where the, the wreckage or most of the wreckage came to rest. I mean, it could have been a case of authorities cordoning off the area, and, or it might just be the practicalities of getting to, to where the accident happened. Now, of course, uh, you know, beyond the actual accident itself, a lot of the usual things we see post-accident are happening here, primarily media speculation about what may have happened and, you know, going off on uh, tangents almost immediately. Yeah, the coverage has been uh, typically bad, and I, I always caution people following an incident to take every news report, every broadcast with, with a certain grain of salt. Um, because there's there's so much rampant speculation and, as you say, going out on tangents that may or may not have anything to do with the accident. In this particular case, uh, a lot was made of the fact that the doomed plane had returned to the gate before the uh, ill-fated takeoff for some sort of maintenance issue, which uh, I understand turned out to be a problem with one of the air data sensors, one of the probes that you see along the uh, nose area in the front of the plane. And, you know, while nothing is for certain, it's, it's highly doubtful that, that that particular problem had anything to do with the accident. 
you know, the experts I like to look to in something like this are the usual suspects. That is the national organization that's going to be responsible for doing this. And I checked the Spanish site, their version of the NTSB, and they didn't even have a press release that was, as of last night, didn't have a press release that was specifically about this event. So uh, they're moving a bit more slowly than what you would see from the AIB over in Britain or the NTSB in the U.S., but uh, you know, I have full confidence that they'll uh, be forthright with uh, giving information as it becomes available. And for those who are interested, the Spanish Authority has a website like the NTSB does, plenty of information on it. They even have English versions of it, so if there are people out there who are interested in seeing for themselves what's going on, they can easily go there. And as far as uh, Spanish media is concerned, the best one I've seen the first couple of days after this has been the El País newspaper out of Madrid. They have a very extensive website, uh, plenty of links to both uh, photographs and videos and such, and plenty of uh, you know, reports and testimony from people involved in the investigation early on, at least. So if you're looking for something that's uh, more or less straight from the horse's mouth, that's one place to go. And, of course, if yeah. you can't read Spanish, there's plenty of translation tools on Google and elsewhere that can give you a pretty good translation of, of, news, of news items, especially. You know, conventional wisdom at this point, from the very sort of superficial news reports that we've been getting, is that an engine failed as the plane was taking off, and therefore it careened off the runway and crashed. But when you get into it, people need to understand that an engine failing on an airplane during takeoff is not by itself going to cause it to crash. There had to be something else going on, be it the wrong reaction by the crew to what happened and or some other extenuating circumstance such as a piece of the engine impacting one of the control surfaces or a disintegration of the engine that may have uh, ruptured hydraulic lines or who knows, but, but something else had, had right. gone on. Well, just uh, and just for the uh, benefit of the uh, audience that may not be too familiar with procedures there, for every takeoff, you have a decision speed, you know, called V1. If something goes wrong before that speed, before that decision speed, you can safely reject the takeoff and stop on the runway. Now, from the early reports that came out, it looks as though the engine problem, whatever it was, occurred right about the time the plane was to lift off from the runway and that the airplane was actually airborne. And the standard procedure for any commercial jet is if the most critical engine fails at the most critical part of takeoff and you're at or beyond V1, you continue the takeoff and, if need be, circle around and land again. So, you know, theoretically, if only there was an engine problem and you're already airborne, you shouldn't put the airplane back on the ground. No matter how much runway you may have, the standard procedure would be to keep flying. It's a hard thing for people to, to visualize, and that's what they need to do is visualize it. You have to picture a runway and picture a plane beginning its takeoff roll. The plane reaches a certain critical speed just before liftoff, and that's called the V1 speed in pilot parlance. And if any sort of problem occurs prior to that V1 speed, the plane, per regulation, still has enough room on that runway to come to a stop. And every takeoff has a has a calculated maximum weight so that stoppage is guaranteed it's different for every takeoff every airport every runway and if a problem occurs after that point uh, per regulation the plane still has has enough thrust to continue the takeoff to lift off and to climb away safely following even the failure fire whatever of, of the most critical engine 
So an engine failure on takeoff, right, almost right up to the point where the wheels lift off, is, is not by itself going to cause an accident. It can't. So if I'm in the passenger seat, I'm, we're rumbling down the runway. So is V1 speed the same speed as when I feel the airplane rotating off the ground, or is V1 speed happening before then sometimes? Depends on the airplane, depends on your weight, depends on, on each takeoff, but as a rule, V1 speed is a little bit prior to when you feel the plane begin to rotate into the air. So if I'm a passenger and I feel the plane beginning to rotate and take off, I feel the front end of the plane coming up, we're past V1 speed. You're past V1 speed, and should anything happen at that point, say uh, an engine suddenly quit, burst into flames, uh, whatever, um, you're continuing. You're not going to try and stop at that point because at that point your stopping distance is no longer guaranteed. And in any case, per regulation, the plane at that point has enough power to continue its takeoff and climb away. Every commercial airliner has to be able to do that. Uh, We don't know what happened if, if... they had attempted to to put the plane back on the runway after V1. I, I, we just we just don't know. We don't know why they might have done that. It could have been something beyond their control. Now let's get personal for a second. Uh, as many in the audience know, you're a professional pilot and you've flown all kinds of things from large jet airliners down to presumably very small aircraft. How many times have you had to do a rejected takeoff? Well, in the real world, rejected takeoffs are pretty uncommon, and the majority of them happen at lower speeds. And you've never done any rejected takeoffs even at low speeds? Oh, personally, no. I've, I've done many. Uh, I couldn't tell you how many off the top of my head, but, but certainly several at speeds probably up to 80 knots or so, maybe a little mm-hmm. faster, which is roughly halfway to your liftoff speed. So you were not uh, nowhere close to being at a critical point where it's like, uh, you know, one second of delay could be uh, the difference between a routine rejected takeoff and problems. You've never even come close to that. Not in the real world. In the simulator, yes, many times. Well, here's a common simulator scenario. This is a real bread-and-butter training maneuver. You're cleared for takeoff, and just as the words V1 are coming out of your mouth, an engine fails or catches on fire. The way it works a lot in the training environment is you're, you're, you're given the failure just after or right at the moment of V1. And in that, at that point, the, uh, the protocol is to continue the takeoff. Every, every crew member knows that. And it takes a little bit more work and more concentration than normal, but the plane will continue and, and will lift into the air and will climb out. I mean, that's guaranteed based on your weight and, and the runway length for every takeoff. Well, here we have the question now is if in Madrid something happened beyond that point, did, did the crew then attempt to, to put the plane back on the ground? And if so, why? I, I tend to doubt that's what happened. I think there was something else going on, a, the, a loss of control caused by something that we don't, we don't know yet. And then to back up to the... Uh, the issue about continuing the takeoff after V1, there is a caveat to that, which is if the crew believes that for some reason the plane is not flyable or unsafe to continue in that condition, you do have the, the right, if you will, to, to put the plane back on the ground. And it's a subjective thing, and it's up to the captain at that point. There's not a lot of time to decide whether or not that's what you want to do. And luckily, the, you know, that, that kind of situation is exceedingly rare. But it could happen, and and maybe that's what we're looking at in Madrid. 
And just a, a general point, um, when it comes to flying an airplane, the pilot in command, the captain, whoever is in charge of the aircraft, has uh, the right and even the responsibility of doing whatever it takes to safely land the airplane. And if that means violating regulations or violating procedure or you know making it up as you go along, whatever it takes, then you do that. And uh, you know, in retrospect, looking after the fact, when we have months to look over the data and pick through all the data, you can always say, well, the pilot made this decision, he or she shouldn't have done that. But when you're in the seat, when things are happening and the decisions have to be made, you do what you have to do. And if that means you violate rules, well, you know, take the consequences later, but save the airplane now. No, absolutely, and every every captain is well aware of that. And in this case, it could turn out that, that trying to stop the plane after V1 might have been the right thing to do, um, albeit not with a successful result. As far as being creative in the air, uh, well, the classic case that people point to, and I point to it too, is that DC-10 in 1989, the United Airlines DC-10 that had an engine failure in flight and a subsequent failure of all the hydraulic systems. And this was something that had never been trained for, not just by United, but by any crew. And no one thought that it was possible to fly a plane with full hydraulic failure, a DC-10 rather, with full hydraulic failure and an engine out. Uh, you know, a betting person would have said, you know, all those people are dead. And the crew was able to figure things out on the fly. Uh, and they were doing a lot of things, only some of which were actually useful in controlling the airplane, but they didn't know it at the time. They did what they thought was right, and they ended up landing the plane, and about half the people did survive. There was a lot of uh, improvisation to get that thing uh, on, on the ground relatively intact. Well, it wasn't relatively intact in the end, but the result was much better than most people would have anticipated. One of the things they um, had was the luxury of time. And that they it had was the luxury of time, and, and they had the luxury of time and the luxury of good weather and the luxury of, of the incident occurring as they were at cruising altitude um, and not at the most critical point of flight, just as you're lifting off. And I think we might be, at this point, putting a little too much emphasis on, on the crew having possibly made a bad decision. We, we really have no idea. Right, we have, we have none, none whatsoever. Uh, could have been it could have been entirely a, a mechanical thing that um, that caused the airplane to become uncontrollable at that point. Well, the mantra I tell people and put on the site after an accident is, no matter who you are, no matter how expert you are about aviation, the people who have the best information are those who are responsible for investigating this. And until they uh, release uh, their full report or more information from their side, you know anything you or I or anyone else can say is going to be speculation, and we'll just have to take a wait-and-see attitude. But that said, uh, it's also healthy, in my opinion, to think in general about these things because we can't just sitting quietly waiting for someone else to make a decision isn't our only responsibility. We can also do things such as if we think there might, let's say you're in, in the flying business, if you think it might be something that's relevant to your operation, you might review your procedures. If you think it might be something that is... Uh, a problem with your airport, your airline, uh, your crew, you know, it makes sense to do a little checking, to do a little uh, a little investigation to see if you may have a potential problem. You don't just have to wait for the NTSB or the FAA or the AAIB or whomever to come out with a decision. Yeah, I think that, I mean, speculation is always a bad idea this soon after an accident. But there is a certain value to throwing these different scenarios out on the table and encouraging people, especially people who don't 
know a lot about flying and may be apprehensive about it, um, encouraging them to, to look at this information because it gives them a better sense of the different multiple layers of safety that are built into every flight that they're usually not aware of, such as the fact that that a plane can take off and, and climb with one engine. You know, lost in all of this is, is the fact that 20 or 25,000, however many it is, commercial flights take off every day around the world. You know, that's 25, 30,000 departures every day. And the number of takeoff incidents that we see is, is a handful every year. And then the number of those that are tragic accidents like the one in Madrid is just a fraction of that. And another thing I'd like to point out to the audience is that, uh, you know, at airsafe.com, we follow these kinds of things very closely. And it's on the order of a dozen times a year where there is any sort of airline event that involves one or more passenger deaths. And most of those only involve a handful of passenger deaths. And even fewer of those happen to have things working for it that makes it a big-time media event. If uh, To be, be gross here, if the accident happened in some obscure country, no one's going to hear about it. Maybe a one-day story on you know the second section of the newspaper. But if it happens in a major country, in a major media market, uh, such as Madrid then it's going to be something that's going to be big-time news for days. Another point is uh, reading some of the coverage from Madrid. Um, there is a certain human interest uh, angle to a lot of the coverage that I think gives accidents like this a longer shelf life. An example of that was, again, El País, great coverage, but they also have a lot of human interest stuff. There was one interview they had yesterday where they were talking to a rescue crew worker who was relating the story that some small child who we rescued from the wreckage was asking him over and over the questions, where are my parents, and when will the movie end? Uh, you know, the implication being the kid you know, didn't believe what was happening to him. Right. Very dramatic. You know, my Spanish isn't that great. So uh, even with my limited vocabulary, I was able to read the story, understand it, and get a, an emotional impact out of it. And that's the kind of story that you're going to see repeatedly in the vacuum between the event happening and the actual facts being published months down the line. To take that a step further, uh, another thing I've been noticing in the coverage is a recitation of past accidents. Um, the incident in Madrid involved an MD-80, so now every article has to have a rundown of all the past crashes involving MD-80s, as if that has something to do with this, which really it doesn't. But in a way, it, it stokes people's anxieties. And suggests maybe that, well, is there something wrong with this particular type of airplane? And no, it's just that there happen to be a lot of MD-80s out there, so they're going to be involved in a higher share of incidents than a certain other type. And I can also add there that uh, since the event happened, the number one page on my site for traffic, hands down, not even close, was the MD-80 page. That doesn't surprise me, and I've gotten letters from people asking, uh, is the MD-80 safe? Is it true that uh, this plane is involved in more accidents than any other, and so on and so forth? And, you know, I, I really caution people not to get into the plane versus plane uh, statistical debate, because it's, it, it's not constructive. It's really just an academic exercise, because with, with crashes as uncommon as they are, you're not going to get really meaningful data when you start comparing the safety record of, say, a 737 versus an A320 or an MD-80 versus whatever. 
because the numbers are just so tiny, and and because one particular plane maybe has uh, five more uh, accidents to its name over a 20-year period, that that really is no indication that it's less safe than any other plane. Airsafe.com would like to thank Captain Smith for taking the time to talk with us today. Upcoming episodes of the conversation at Airsafe.com will include interviews with other aviation professionals about the Spanner event. Additional information about this event, including updates or findings from the investigation, will be available at spanair.airsafe.org. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.